So Romans chapter 6, I thought we'd go ahead and string a couple of our Romans studies almost back to back and, uh, and touch on an idea or build further on the idea that Paul is making here, the argument, the exposition he's giving on the concept of grace and what that means to the believer. Uh, it started uh, earlier in the discussion on justification by faith, God's grace being the means by, or the, uh, the gift to us, faith being the means by which it's appropriated, but really it's the gift of God, not of works, as Paul would later say in Ephesians. But he makes the point in chapter 4, verse 5, when he talks about the one who is, uh, who is graced or saved or justified apart from the deeds of the law entirely. Belief, not being a work, but rather just simply the means through which that justification, that grace, ultimately is appropriated. In chapter 5, we talked about the idea of headship or federalism, the idea that we were once under the headship of Adam in our sin, and through Adam, sin entered the world, and by that, death ultimately followed, and we were under that curse, ultimately uh, under the headship of Adam. But now we have been brought under the headship of Christ because of his finished work, again, appropriated that finished work and the grace that comes through it, the justification that is given to us or applied to us because of his work, his efficacious work, uh, just to throw a big word in there, um, is, is a gift that is given to us. And we are now brought from being one thing into something else under the headship of Christ. We were one thing. Now we are something else entirely. We were dead in sin. Now we are ultimately alive and justified uh, because of Christ's finished work at the cross. This, of course, becomes the foundation for so much of our understanding of what grace or the really, uh, as we try to plumb the depths of what grace is all about, this becomes a very fun fundamental thing for us to understand and, and embrace. So that being said, Paul then moves on to discuss the idea of the mindset that would sort of take for granted this grace. Uh, if we truly understand what it is that Christ has done for us and the gift that's been given to us, the idea of taking it for granted really shouldn't have a place. And that's kind of the mindset that Paul is now beginning to approach in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. So let's go ahead and read that. Of course, you always want to make sure you've got your Bible ready to go, because that's what drives the discussion uh, and, 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 uh, and such. And so here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Good question. Here's what Paul has been saying up to this point. Now, since grace becomes um, uh, all the more visible because of our sin, the grace that, or the sin that ultimately abounded in our lives, as Paul will go on to say, was superabounded by the grace of God. Well, why not continue in sin? Because after all, my sin magnifies the grace of God. Now, hopefully you've never really thought about grace that way. Uh, but you know, Paul is addressing this question because likely some had. Uh, certainly uh, in, in Corinth, this was the case where people were believing in the finished work of Christ, but, you know, six, seven chapters worth of uh, opening content, Paul is trying to fix all the problems in this church. A group of believers who are justified by the finished work of Christ, but yet are living in such a way as to completely seem as though they're not. It's a kind of kind of ridiculous, really. Uh, well, so hopefully you and I never really think of grace as something to use as a license for sin, 
Because after all, we're going to magnify God's goodness and grace, his love, his kindness, and all these things. In our sin, it gives God a chance to demonstrate just how far extending his grace is. No, that should never be. Uh, Another uh, thing I'll throw in at this point is that sometimes when we talk about these things, people think about the concept of holy living, which of course is the... um, the other end of the spectrum from sort of the mindset we were just describing that would take advantage or take for granted God's grace. Uh, the other would be sort of a uh, a mindset of legalism that somehow we're still earning some element of God's grace or some part of it. We're contributing uh, or partnering with him in regard to his grace and that kind of thing. That's another error that we want to make sure we avoid. Uh, and rather, just see the clear teaching of Scripture in that we are justified by the finished work of Christ, the grace that flows from that finished work, and our holy living is now in response. No longer do we hopefully harbor the mistaken idea that we sometime, somehow earn the grace of God, or we partner in His in, in sort of the process of it and that kind of thing. That would be a very bizarre way to sort of view uh, grace and, and such. But rather, we understand again that we are fully justified by the finished work of Christ, the grace of God appropriated by faith. And now the life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Okay, It is a response. It's not an earning thing. It is simply a response. Living by grace, living by faith, living a holy life uh, with the intent of honoring and glorifying the one, who paid for us and set us free. This is the proper view of grace and the response to it. So again, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, by no means is the answer. Or some of your versions will say, God forbid. The idea is that it should be unthinkable that, you know, again, we should never imagine that grace uh, is to be viewed that way or that our, our lives should be sort of a uh, you know, a, a uh, an opportunity to, to push God's grace and just see how far it'll go or anything like that. God forbid we ever think that way. And he goes on to make the very logical argument then, well, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay? Now, this is not a hard thing, excuse me, to understand as far as what Paul is saying here, but let me just kind of flesh it out a little bit. Well, that's a bad choice of terms, right? Let me go ahead and just sort of break it down. Um, But the idea here is that since we have, you know, come by faith, we are by definition leaving the old life behind and walking in newness of life. We are, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, you know, when, when we talk about baptism, we're talking about the putting down of the old man and the rising of the new man to new life. It's symbolic. It symbolizes an inward change. It's an outward expression that is representative of an inward change that is taken as we come by faith. Obviously, it doesn't mean that we're walking in perfect holiness, that we never sin, never commit a sin ever again. But what it means is, is that we have chosen, responded to uh, walk in, in with Christ. And so, therefore, baptism is our way of demonstrating outwardly that which we are claiming 
to have embraced inwardly. Now, of course, whether or not that's legit generally is expressed through the fruit that comes in, in a person's life. There's really nothing more tragic than, than looking at someone's life, someone who has said that they are a Christian, but you never really saw much evidence of that at all or any evidence of that at all. Someone says that they said a prayer or they went down to the altar uh, or they believe things about Jesus, but no inner transformation that has ever found its way out in their life ever happens, and you never can recognize. It's kind of like the old adage, if being a Christian was a crime, would there be enough evidence in our lives to convict us of that? Well, it should not be a matter of having to look for evidence. It should be obvious. Uh, a, a good tree bears good fruit. That is the natural expression of a healthy, good tree. And so therefore, uh, or like Jesus told the parable of the sower and the seed in, um, in Matthew 13, uh, four kinds of seed, it is only the last one that bore any fruit. Some crop, you know, point poked up a little bit, but then they died off as soon as like any hardship came or tribulation of any kind uh, or was pecked away by the birds and that kind of thing. But one, the fourth one, bore fruit. And so therefore we know that the last one is the one that ultimately received the seed, which was the word sown by the Lord into the, into the soil or the heart of the person who heard it, and ultimately it, it bore fruit. It becomes the evidence of an inward change. Bad fruit or no fruit is indicative of a bad tree. A good tree will not bear bad fruit, and a good tree will not bear a good tree will not bear bad fruit, and a bad tree will not bear good fruit. Is the idea not that there can't be a, a piece of good fruit that shows up once in a while in a bad tree, or that a piece of bad fruit won't once and again once in a while show up in a good tree? But the overarching, uh, you know, predominant expression of the health of that tree is based on the visible fruit, and so therefore a believer looks like a believer, sounds like a believer. Could somebody be faking it? Of course. But in general, over time, you can tell whether or not someone is genuinely a believer or not. And the expression of genuine true faith is good fruit. So uh, someone who is genuinely born again generally does not try to see how close to the fence they can walk, does not say, does not always try to find ways to justify sin. Uh, but still sort of have a foot in the kingdom kind of a thing. That That's a tragedy when that happens. And there are believers who do live that way. Um, you know, I want to I wanna go out and drink. I want to do this stuff. I want to, but yet I want to claim Jesus kind of a thing. Well, that that that's a really, not only sad, but kind of dangerous place to be. Uh, I have known people that have questioned their salvation and have wondered if they're legitimately saved. Uh, and the reason they wrestle with that sometimes is because there's sin in their lives that they really don't want to deal with. On the other hand, somebody who is well aware of the fact that they still battle a sin nature, but they are seeking to walk with the Lord, and they are daily picking up their cross and following Jesus. They are daily dying to self and seeking to let the Lord have space in their lives to bring things to the surface and purify them day by day in a practical sanctification kind of sense, not in a positional justification sense, because that was done at the cross. And by faith, we've received that and we are justified. But there is still the New Testament call, Paul uh, to the Thessalonians, and, and likewise, throughout the, here's an example in Romans as well, where the call is to therefore now uh, walk in such a way as to bear fruit. 
there is a, a change, a transformation that happens as we are continually being sanctified and made more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit further sets us apart as holy day after day after day. A believer is concerned with such things and longs to be made more and more like Jesus. And so the kind of thinking that Paul is talking about here is kind of absurd for a believer. Well, no. Should we sin the more that grace might abound? Of course not. Why would you even think that? That's not That's not normal thinking for a believer. A believer wants to be like Jesus. As a matter of fact, as we've said before, that's what a disciple is. Somebody who wants to be just like their master, wants to sound like them, remind people of them, wants to think the way they think, wants to do the things they do, wants to just, you know, you, you can tell whose disciple somebody is by the way they remind you of the master that they're following. And that is the desire of every believer, uh, and certainly any believer that is serious about their walk with God. That, that is a natural desire to be more and more like Jesus. And so he goes on, baptized into his death, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised uh, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, Paul said we are new creations in Christ. For if we've been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, in other words, uh, there is this putting to death and then this rising to life. Now, that is true physically. There will be a physical resurrection of the body. But there is also the, the, the commensurate dying as well. Uh, that doesn't mean every Christian is going to become a, you know, is to be killed for their faith. I was going to use the word martyr. Uh, martyr typically is associated with those who die for their faith. But at this point in history that we're reading about, the word martyr would speak of somebody who lives for their faith. And so, um, so when we talk about the death, in some cases, there was actually those, there were those who were put to death for their faith. But the idea here is more of the dying to self and the putting down of the old man. Again, baptism being a symbol of that. We know that, verse 6, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice that idea here. Sin is not something that we enjoy. Sin is something we are actually enslaved by. It is the pleasure of sin that becomes the shackle of sin. It is the pleasure of going off in directions that dishonor the Lord and that he has clearly spoken of as being sin, going after those things and enjoying them becomes, that that enticement becomes an enshackling. That's why in Hebrews, the author says, let us therefore cast off all the sin that so easily besets us or slows us down or weighs us down. The idea of throwing it off like a weight that it is. Uh, And so this is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Again, sin is not something that frees us. It's something that binds us. The casting off of these things brings the experience of genuine freedom. I will not be brought under, you know, Paul would say, uh, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Okay, I will not allow any of these things that even though I can, I can go out and do this and not lose my salvation. But nonetheless, I recognize this as something that will weigh me down and enslave me. I'll become a, a slave to this thing. I want to be careful about that, whether it's a, a physical thing like, um, like, like 
you know, alcohol or something like that, or, or, or drugs or something like that, or whether it's something emotional, uh, a, a sexual uh, uh, desire to be with somebody when you're unmarried or somebody who's not your spouse. The idea of those enticements become things that enslave us. And we have to therefore make sure that we guard against those things. And if we're in them, we want to cast them off entirely. We want the, the, the flesh to be put to death that we might truly walk in the spirit. Um, this doesn't mean we go live in monasteries and do all that kind of stuff, but rather we daily hand over our lives to the Lord once again anew, not as a means of earning grace, not as a means of legalism, but rather instead simply an expression of our desire to be like Jesus, who himself died and rose again to life. Um, So now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This again is the great invitation to experience the freedom and fullness of our relationship with God, unhindered and unfettered by sin. Uh, It is said that when somebody has an addiction or somebody is in bondage to something, one of the things that, that uh, it, it can't just be as simple as saying, well, stop doing that. There has to be this giving of something that is more desirable than the thing that is enslaving them. Uh, in other words, I want this more than I want that. Well, that relationship with Christ in all of its fullness is something to be desired deeply. And it's a greater thing to have, to possess, to enjoy and experience to the fullness more than whatever sin that may satisfy for a season may bring. And so the encouragement here is to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now Paul will speak to this some more in Romans chapter 8 as as he finishes in chapter 7 and goes through this discussion of his own struggles with sin and the recognition of the flesh nature and the, the constant battle that goes on and the freedom that comes because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's coming in verses in chapter 7 and 8. But just to um, finish uh, verses uh, 12 through 14, let me just read these here as Paul sort of uh, begins to talk about the, the, the need to put off the enslavement to sin. And then he will later in verses 15 on speak about the idea of being instead a slave of righteousness and the benefits and beauty of that. So chapter uh, 6, verse 12 Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Notice, let not. There is a part of this that we engage in. Now again, we're not earning our salvation, but we're making choices about the way we live our lives as saved people. We have that capacity because we have a new nature. We are new creations in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within believers. And therefore, we have the capacity now to see sin and in the power of the Holy Spirit, choose not to entertain it, go after it, walk in it, but rather to walk with Jesus and to walk in the Spirit, again, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Reign speaks to have lordship over, right? Let not sin have that in your life, in your mortal body, in your flesh, to make you obey its passions, which is what sin does. It feels as though we have this taskmaster that will not release us, but we continually feel forced to continue in sin. We have no capacity to break free of it. We actually talked about this in our online prayer meeting yesterday. It was brought up 
uh, the idea of, uh, I'm sorry, not in our prayer meeting, but one of the comments actually uh, was shared by uh, one of our folks viewing, talked about the fact that they had been in bondage, but the Lord gave them victory over it and recognized that it is only the Lord that can bring that victory. There is something to be said for recognizing our dependence upon the Lord and the place where sin becomes this huge temptation for us and becomes like a shackle upon us is a great place to recognize how desperately we need the Lord to, and his power really to overcome that and to not fall to it. Um, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought uh, from death to life. Uh, like he, James would say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The call is for us to resist, not to just cave and rely on the grace of God. God's grace is there for us. And where sin abounds, grace superabounds. But we ought not be content to continue to live in sin. Instead, we should seek to enjoy the fullness of our relationship with God, which is always hindered by sin. We ought not allow that to happen insofar as we have any ability to, or any conscious in that moment, that, that wherewithal to call upon the Lord rather than give in. We call upon him to intervene, to stand before us, to empower us, to, to turn away, you know, like, like David. He couldn't help what, you know, he walked out on that rooftop and he saw her through his window and he saw Bathsheba cross the way on her rooftop bathing, but he could choose whether or not he was going to linger over that view. And he failed in that. And the consequences that came from that whole episode were profound and followed him for the rest of his life. He was a man after God's own heart. We know he was saved. We know he was a believer. But his sin followed him throughout his life. This is the warning that we learn from Scripture. Paul would say at the end of the book of Romans that the things that are written before were written for our learning so that we through the patience of the Scriptures might have hope. Patience and endurance of the Scriptures might have hope. So present not your bodies to sin, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, we, have, we were one thing, now we are somewhere else entirely. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In other words, again, we were bought at a price, therefore I will glorify God with my body. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. A profound statement. Uh, Paul has spoken about how as we are now under Christ and we are recipients of his grace, the justification has been gifted to us in the finished work of Christ, we're no longer under the curse of the law. This doesn't speak about the idea of your being justified by obeying the law. Now you're justified by faith. Nobody was ever justified by following the law because no one ever did. Paul would say in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has been justified by the law. But now we've been taken out of that place of being condemned by the law, and now we are free in Christ. And so therefore, the call is to cling to him. Not the sake we're going to lose our salvation, but to cling to him that he might lead us into a life that is fully free of the enshacklements, the, uh, the entwining of sin into our lives, the besetting nature and the weight of sin upon our shoulders, but rather we leave it behind and instead walk with him. So, uh, really, a lot of this passage, uh, you know, really should be taken as a great encouragement to seek something better than what sin ultimately seeks to entice us with. A relationship with Christ and enjoying the fullness thereof is so much greater than whatever sin has. Matter of fact, when, when our minds begin to wander, when we begin to, uh, to, to, I always want to say, fall into sin, we don't often fall into sin. Oftentimes, we walk right into it. But whatever the case, whether we fall into it, walk into it, run into it, 
when we finally find ourselves in the midst of it, we are devastated because we know we failed. Now, the grace of God is there. We're, not, we're, we're still justified, but we feel the guilt and shame of what we've just done, and we know that we didn't want to do that, but in our flesh we caved. Well, thankfully, again, we are still secure in our relationship with Christ, but there is this natural tendency to know what's right, and when we do what's wrong, to feel that conviction. And that's good, and that's healthy. And when we walk in those ways, it's good we feel that. Because the Lord, if we didn't feel that, the Lord would have to chasten us. Whom he loves, the Lord loves, he chastens. The idea is that we would desire more that which is in Christ than that which is ultimately satisfied in our flesh. So, things to think about. A passage to certainly consider and contemplate, to, to meditate over, and I mean that in the truly biblical sense of the word, not in the weird, new-agey way. But think through those things. Spend time in that. Uh, It's a great encouragement to walk in holiness for the sake of enjoying the fullness of our relationship in Christ. So, Father, we thank you and pray that you'd help us toward that end. To see all the richness in Christ as being being valued more more than gold or anything else. It is the high calling and beautiful invitation. So we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, Father, just help us to walk in these things, to enjoy you, and to enjoy you more than sin. Help us not to take it, take for granted your grace, but rather instead to allow your grace to be the means through which we grow, we ultimately become more and more like Jesus. We pray the Holy Spirit would have the freedom in our lives to draw us, uh, to make us more and more like Jesus. Uh, we pray that we would walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Thank you, Father, for your grace, your goodness, your patience, and your desire to make us all that you have created us to be in Christ. Thank you, Lord. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.